Our scripture passage today is from Philippians 3, 8 through 11, and Colossians 3, 1 through 15. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. These are God's words. Amen. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Welcome to see so many of you out on a rainy day like today. Uh, Husbands, men, those of you who are able to to get here and and have your kids, you know, semi-dressed and their hair not... Looking crazy, I applaud you, commend you. Uh, so we're, we're excited uh, to be here and to continue our series this morning, looking at the doctrine of union with Christ. Uh, we have talked for many weeks now about this, and um, we are going to do a couple more weeks together, just fleshing out the idea of what it means for a Christian to be a person who, as Paul says in the scripture, is in Christ. And we've looked for the last three weeks, okay, at uh, the idea of Jesus' life. And because Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's will, uh, and we're in him, then though we have a record of sin and disobedience, because we are in Christ, uh, we no longer are looked at and counted by God as one who has a record of disobedience and sin. If our faith is in Jesus, then God looks at us, he finds us in Jesus, and that means that we are credited with his record of obedience uh, and submission to his Father. We looked at Jesus' death, and we said that we're united to him not only in his life, so that by his life we can have righteousness. We're united to him in his death, which means that when Jesus died, we are co-crucified with him. Literally, we died when he died. In his death, we died. And therefore, um, all of the payment for our sins has been made because in Jesus, it was just as if we were on the cross dying for our sins ourselves, though it was him there doing it. We experience this death, we said. So the death of, of Christ comes inside and literally the, the old parts of our lives begin to die and something new begins uh, to, to come out. 
parts of the deadness in our life. And so we said last week, not only are we, do we die with him, but we're raised with him. So see, we're united to Christ in his life and in his death and also in his resurrection. And because we're united to him in his resurrection, then when he was raised from the dead, we also were raised, not just in the hope that we will one day be raised at the end of the world, but we literally experience a resurrection that results in a newness of life that begins to flesh itself out in all the different areas of our life. So this is what we've been talking about this summer, is this idea of union with Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. But this morning, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus and how it is that we're united to him in his ascending back into heaven, okay? And so if these, if these are hard concepts, they're, they're, remember we call it the mystical union with Jesus. And why is it called the mystical union with Jesus? Because it's mystical, right? We're dealing with mystery here. This is, this is hard, and it gets even harder and more mystical when we come to what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? The ascension of Jesus. And that is that after the resurrection of Jesus, he spent 40 days on the earth teaching his disciples, getting them ready for their mission. And then, as Mark puts it in his gospel, he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So if you're new to Christianity, here's what we are saying, okay? If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're here and you're not really sure what Christianity is, okay, we are saying Christians believe that the God-man Jesus has gone to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, and is in the place of power and authority, ruling over the universe for the sake of his church, until his second coming. So where is Christ? Right here in verse 1, in Colossians 3, Paul says that he is seated at the right hand of God. And the implication of our union with Christ, remember what we've been saying, what goes for him goes with me. And so the implication is that if Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God, then we're there too. So Paul, the reason I used Ephesians 2 again in your call to worship, Paul in Ephesians 2, 6 says that we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says the same thing here in Colossians 3 when he says that we have died and are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father until he comes again. If your faith is in him, you've been so united to him that this, is, this concept is, I just, you know, we're straining in our minds and our imaginations to understand. But Paul is saying in a very real way that if your faith is in him and if you've been bound to him, then if he's at the right hand of God the Father, you're there too. Isn't that amazing? And so, then, what Paul is working out here in Colossians 3 are just, are just these things. He's saying, if this is true, then all of this chapter in Colossians 3 is about, he's, he's saying, become what you already are. That's, that's the message of Colossians 3. Paul is giving us instructions, and the sum of the instructions that he's giving us is that we are to become what we already are. We're to put to death what is earthly in us, he says. And so, this morning, we want to just look at this. We want to see, first... Paul's instructions, become what you already are. Secondly, we want to see the mechanics of becoming what we already are. And then thirdly, we want this passage helps us with where we go to find the power to become what we already are. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're there with him. So Paul says, become what you already are. But what are the mechanics of becoming what we already are? And where do we go to get the power? Those are the things we're going to talk about this morning. Beginning just with this, Paul says... Become what you already are. Union with Christ is not just a doctrine, remember. We've said it's something we experience and enter into. And so in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives us this amazing doctrine of our union with Christ. Let's read it again, okay? Just just because it really is so overwhelmingly amazing. 
Verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul says, we've died, we've been raised with him, we're seated with him in heavenly places. That is a present spiritual reality. That's where we are. That's what we are. And then immediately in verse 5, if you look down there, Paul says, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. Now, do you see what he's doing? If you're a Christian, then you're already in heaven in Christ, he says. But since you're already there, then even now, as you live your life on the earth, Paul says, become a person of heaven now. Become heavenly minded. Live the life of heaven now. Become practically, right now, what you already are. And that's what the rest of Colossians 3 is about. It's instructions on how to begin to live the life of heaven now. He says... Put to death what is earthly in you. So the way you become a person who begins to live the life of heaven now is the first thing is is you have to kill sin. Put to death. Kill it. What is earthly in you? And then, then, and then there's a list. Sexual morality, which is the Greek word porneia, which should sound familiar. Pornography, porneia. Sexual immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. And so what, what, what Paul is pointing us to is he says the work, then, of becoming in your life what you already are in heaven is the work of what the, the Puritans used to call mortification. It's this fancy word that just means to kill sin. And John Owen has written more than most people. He's a Puritan uh, theologian and pastor who lived a long time ago, four or 500 years ago. Uh, right around the time of Oliver Cromwell and all of that stuff that went on in Europe with the Catholics and the Protestants fighting back and forth for so many years. And he, he's written a bunch about this, and he has a famous line in one of his books, and I think it's very appropriate, but he just says this. He says, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He says those are the two options. Either you can be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. And in his book on mortification, he goes on, and it just so happens I'm reading this uh, through a reading plan I'm following But he goes on to say this, he says, To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of his strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act. Indwelling sin, then, is compared to a person, a living person, called the old man, with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtly strength. This, says the Apostle Paul, must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, it has to have its power, life, vigor, and strength broken and taken away by the Spirit. So this idea of mortification, this idea of what we're being called to here in verse three, verse 5 of chapter 3, this putting to death of sin is this habitual weakening of the influence of sin through a constant warfare against it in our lives. That's what we're being called to. So some particular directives then. Just some thoughts. Just for free, okay? This is just practical, everyday kind of baseline Ways you go about doing this work that Paul is calling us to this morning. First, be thoughtful. Let me just, I'm just trying to help us envision this. Be thoughtful in advance about the kinds of sins your personality and your constitution make you especially prone to. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, there's a difference between the kinds of sins that introverts are prone to and the kinds of sins that extroverts are prone to. Right? Um, there's, there's a difference in the kinds, the, the types of sin that task-oriented people uh, are, are going to be task-oriented people, you know, I've learned, typically um, don't struggle 
with um, enmeshed relationships. They don't really like people very much, right? There's a job to get done. We're going. So there's a particular type of sin that task-oriented people, you know, you need, to, you need to understand yourself in order to understand where your kind of natural weaknesses lie. People-oriented people, you know, different, different set of sins, right? And so, you, so know and be thoughtful in advance about the kinds of sins your personality and constitution make you especially prone to. Secondly, be aware of the circumstances that lead to sin and seek to avoid them. Okay, for me, too much alone time, not a good thing. Right? And there's an old saying that the, our, our forebears knew this well. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? So too much, too much alone time, too much downtime. For others, it might be too, you know, too much busy time. You know, whatever, what, there, in other words, there are certain, if you think hard enough, you'll see certain sets of circumstances that lead to sin. And to mortify that sin means you seek to avoid those kinds of circumstances. Thirdly, know the warning signs. Okay? Know the warning signs in your own heart where you can begin to track kind of how, you know, the, the, the allure of sin is kind of waning and waxing in your life. For example, if you feel yourself pulling away from people, if you feel yourself kind of moving towards isolation, big, big, big danger sign, right? Or if you just, if you can just, if you're experiencing a lack of spiritual energy or, you know, energy towards spiritual things, these are, these are the danger signs in your life that things are beginning to go awry and that you need to be aware of, okay? Just a couple more. Fourth, fight strongly, and this is one of Owen's kind of, you know, practical directives. Fight strongly against the first impulse towards sin. As soon as kind of, this, you know, as soon as sinful desires begin to rise in your heart, Go after them at the first impulse. Don't wait until they've kind of sat in your heart for a while because they'll overpower you and eventually you'll, you'll give in. And then fifthly, make obedience your goal always. Refuse to ever excuse sin. Be as diligent with, with what we would call small sins as you would be with the larger sins. See, all of these kind of directives. This is what we mean by this sense of I'm setting myself to the work of killing sin because I know either I am at the work of killing sin or sin is at the work of killing me. And this is what Paul's saying, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. Kill it. Another way he goes on in the passage to say this is, is there's another metaphor he kind of gets into. He says you have to put off, down there in verses 9 and 10, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed. And the metaphor here literally is changing clothes. So some translate some translations say, you know, you have to put off and then you have to clothe yourself with. And so Paul's saying there's, there's a sense in which union with Christ means you died, you've been raised, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And the result of that is that there's this visible, vis, physical, visible change that begins to happen in your life. You begin to put off. Look at verse 9. Literally, intentionally forsake. You put off, and then there's this list. Anger and wrath. Malice, which means troublemaking or trying to stir the pot, right? Slander, which is judging other people or gossiping about them or talking about them to others in a way that damages their reputation. Obscene talk, that, that just means filthy language. Lying, which is the Greek word pseudomai. So it, it, that, that, you know, we use that pseudo. Well, that was kind of a pseudo, you know, we... We use that Greek little prefix, pseudo, all the time. It means intentionally misleading other people. 
It's not really the thing you're talking about. You know, you're, you're just kind of tweaking the conversation enough that you're intentionally misleading people. And Paul says these things are absolutely unacceptable. They're unacceptable. They have no place in the life of somebody who has been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? Because they're the opposite of love. And so Paul says, put them away. Be through with them. I mean, what do you do with your high school yearbook or the trophies you won as a kid? I hope, if you're 37 like me or even a little bit younger, that there's come a time where you realize it's time to box those things up and put them away in the corner of the attic somewhere. Why? Because you don't have any use for them anymore. They're not relevant to your life anymore. You put them away. Paul says, put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. And then he says, down in verse 12, okay, so you put off, you take off these things, but then what happens, the change that begins to happen in your life then is in verse 12, you begin to put on or you begin to intentionally cultivate, and here's this opposite list of of things. Look, verse 12, compassionate hearts, hearts that are moved by the needs of other people, kindness, which means you become a good friend and you meet other people's needs, humility. I mean, in relationships, it's not about you. You literally become invisible, right? Gentleness, you're soft, not harsh. You're, you begin to be patient, which is defined down in the, the verses down below. In verses 13, you, you don't give up on people easily. You, you don't quit on people. You bear with other people in their weaknesses and sins without getting aggravated or annoyed. You forgive them when they sin against you. So do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying... These things here in verses 12 and 13 and 14 are the exact opposite of the list in verses 9 and 10. And so Paul's saying, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So become what you already are. Kill sin. Put it to death. Put off, mortify, intentionally forsake the selfish desires of your heart. And put on and seek and intentionally cultivate the habits of love. This is the call. That we're being called to. This is the life that we are called to live. Become what you already are. Put to death what's earthly in you. Become a heavenly person. That's what this passage is about. But Paul also helps us, secondly, okay, with showing us the mechanics of how this works. So in order to put away sin, you have to understand the dynamics of sin in the human heart. And we have to look very carefully. Go back to verse 5, and I want you to see... In verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And here's where we get insight into how sin works in the heart. My contention is that when, if you look there in verse 5 very carefully, it, it appears as if Paul is saying that it is the covetousness that is idolatry. But my contention, due to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, in other places, is that all of idolatry, not just co- all of sin, not just covetousness, is idolatry. All sin is idolatry, Paul says. So the, the way sin works in the heart is it creates a sense of idolatry. And my rationale for this contention is, is that if you, if you could look through the, the English translation, when Paul mentions evil desire there in verse 5, do you see that? Immor- sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, that... Greek word translated evil desires, the word epithumia. And it's really a poor translation because the word has a prefix that's attached to it. And the prefix is the prefix epi, which means something like in addition to. And so what Paul is saying is that sin, all sin, is epi 
desire. It's epi-emotion. It is, a, it is an over-desire and an ordinate, ordinate desire. And the problem with the translation is that when you read evil desire, you would assume that Paul means, and he's defining sin, simply as a desire for something evil. That's not what the word really means. Instead, it means an over-desire for something good. An idol, see, is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It's a good thing that's become too important so that you begin to bow down and serve it. See, this is, this, this is how he's changing our understanding of sin. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. In my family, um, a, a, a scenario that happens every once in a while. There's problems with the, child, the children's behavior. Just every now and then. Right? And Ashley and I will begin to talk about it. And, um, and, you know, of course, she's their mom, I'm their dad, we both love them, and we're both concerned that they grow into holiness and that they, you know, that they become functioning adults and that they learn how to live life. But if you look closely in our, in our but, but Ashley is way more passionate, way more passionate. She, has a, she brings a lot more emotion into the conversation than I do. Why? Does it mean I don't love my children? No, she would be the first to tell you, there's a tendency for her love for her children to become an over-desire. For her to turn her children and her desire for their behavior to be good into epithumia so that it becomes an idolatrous um, attachment of her heart. Uh, and, and so when, when you get into the conversation, I, I'm much more rational. I'm much more kind of controlled. She just gets very passionate, very emotional. It's just, ah, the end of the world's coming because he didn't pick his clothes up off the floor. Right? Okay, if we start to talk about the church, see, Ashley loves the church. She's, you know, my wife, this is my work. She loves the church, but when there's a problem and we start to talk about it, she can come into those conversations. She can be very controlled. She can be very rational. She can be very thoughtful. I'm just like, ah, ah, you know, the end of the world. It's coming. Why? Because, see, there's, there's, see, is it because she doesn't love the church and I do? No, it's because in my love for my job, like most men, my job can easily become something that I bow down and serve. And so what you see is, is there's, there's good things. Is it good for parents to want their children to be obedient? Yes. Can it become an over-desire in your heart? Yes. Is it good for you to want to be successful at your work? Yes. Can it become an over-desire in your heart? Absolutely. And so what Paul's saying is, is, You've got to start redefining sin in the sense that sin is not just desiring bad things. Sin is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things and meaning to bow down and to serve them and to live all of your life for them. Now, the question obviously becomes then, how do you find out what the idols of your heart are? And the answer is, is that in order to find the epi-desires of your heart, you've got to look for the epi-emotions in your life. Because what epi-desire does is it begins to throw out all kinds of epi-emotion. So let me just go down a couple of things. Okay. Where do you experience epi-anger? Not normal, good anger. Jesus got angry. Anger's not sin. I'm talking about heart-racing, red-faced, punch-a-hole-in-the-wall kind of anger. Epi-anger. See, when you experience that kind of epi-anger, if you trace it back in your life, you'll find that there's some good thing that's become an ultimate thing, and that thing's being blocked, and you're just out of control. Okay, 
Where do you experience epi-sadness, right? Not normal sadness. Sadness is good. Jesus wept. I'm talking about can't get out of the bed, don't want to go on living kind of sadness, epi-sadness. See, where you experience this kind of epi-sadness is a warning light on the dashboard of your life that there's an idol that you've been looking to for life and happiness and you've lost it and you can't get over the loss. So, for example, if you turn a relationship, which is a good thing, a man, for a woman to want to be loved by a man is a good thing. But for a woman to need to be loved by a certain man in order to, to be, feel okay is not a good thing. And so if there's a relationship you've turned into an idol or whatever it might be, and then that person breaks up with you or that per, you, you have a friend and that, that friend rejects you, you don't experience normal sadness. You're, you just begin to literally fall into pieces. See, it's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. Okay, where do you experience epi-worry? This is my favorite. Right. Not normal everyday worry about whether your kids will turn out okay or how are you going to pay the bills and get the house fixed. I'm talking about up all night, obsessive, tending towards desperation kind of anxiety. <laughs> right. Epi-worry. See, when you experience this kind of epi-worry, it means that you've given your heart to an idol and that idol is being threatened. It's in danger. So... For example, if you turn money into an idol, then when the economy goes into the toilet, your 401k begins to shrink, you won't experience normal worry. You'll jump out of a window. Right? And so, see, Paul's saying this is how sin works in the heart. Sin Sin causes our hearts to attach themselves to good, normal, healthy, things that God made that he means for us to enjoy and to turn them into ultimate things that we seek to get life and significance from so that we have to bow down and serve them. And so we have to ask then, how is it that you get a heart healed of this? If this is what sin is, if this is the the mechanics of how sin works in the heart, then how do you get healed of it? And there's a very important truth that we have to get uh, into our minds, and that is this, that the idols of the heart cannot simply be removed. They can only be replaced. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 19th century, preached a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his thesis in that sermon was that if you have an idol, uh, the only way your heart can get healed of it is by, uh, healed of its affection for that idol is to be conquered by a greater affection. So what, what, what Thomas Chalmers is saying and what we believe that Paul is even teaching here in this passage is, is that in order to overcome your affection for your idol, you need a greater joy, you need a greater affection. And that's exactly what Paul's pointing us to in this passage. Pay attention there in verse 5 to the therefore. Put to death, he says, therefore, what is earthly in you? How do you put to death what, what is earthly in you? Well, the therefore is, you know, English teachers, when you see a therefore, you find out what it's there for. And so the therefore there in verse 5 points us back to verses 1 through 4. So the way you do verse 5 is through verses 1 through 4. Those four verses are the power for the work of killing sin, of being fascinated by the truth of our union with Christ, that we've died with him, that we've been raised with him, that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, hidden in Christ in God. And when the truth of your union with Christ becomes your joy and your great affection, you will begin to worship Jesus instead of worshiping these good things that have become ultimate things. See, the solution's worship. Sin is a worship problem. 
And the way you overcome sin is through worship. So look at the way Paul puts it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, verse 4, Christ, who is your life. See, that's the key. Jesus has got to become your life, your joy, your heart's great love and affection. So that, here's the way you do this work. When Practically, when you begin to feel an epi emotion, when epi worry shows up on the, you know, the, the, the radar of your life, you, can, you begin to trace back that epi worry to its root and you find the idol. What, you know, in other words, what thing have I made too important that I've turned into my life that's now being threatened that I'm feeling all of this anxiety about? What good thing has become an ultimate thing? And when you find the idol, whatever it is, a relationship, whether it's money, whether it's the, the, your accountant's report that he sends to you at the end of the month, you've got to hold that thing in your hand, and this is what you've got to do. You've got to, whatever it is, whatever the idol is, you've got to look at it, and in your heart you've got to say, you are not my life. Jesus is my life. And you've got to be intentionally taking your heart off of the things that have captured your heart and putting them onto Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is my life. You know, look at that person and in your heart, don't do it to their face because they might punch you, okay? But in your heart, you've got to look at that relationship that's become too important that just your your emotional roller coaster, you know, is all over the place. And you've got to look at that person in your heart. You've got to say, you are not my life. I've, I've got to repent of, of trying to look and receive from you life and happiness. You're not my life. Jesus is my life. See, that's that's how you do verse 5. Okay, but then we've got to finish up then. But how does Christ become your life? If what you need is joy in Jesus that triumphs over other joy, then how do you get greater joy in Jesus that triumphs over the joy of sin? And that's the third thing we learn from this passage. And I'm going to finish with this. It's the power of... So we've seen become what you already are, the mechanics of becoming what you already are, and now the power for becoming what we already are. And it's all the way down at the bottom of the passage in verse 15 where Paul says, after he lists, you know, put off, put on all these things, and then in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. You see, the solution to the epithemia that causes sin addictions is the peace of Christ. And I'm going to define the peace of Christ by this settled disposition of contentedness and joy and delight in God that rules over the other desires of the heart. It's this deep sense of a disposition of contentedness and joy and delight that guards and protects the hearts against other desires. And so the way you get peace in your heart, the way Christ becomes your life, the solution to the worship problem that we have is these last three words in this verse. The way the peace comes is through what Paul means when he says, let it dwell in you richly, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. You see, the power for killing sin is gratitude. That's it. And of course, the English word gratitude comes from the same root gratis as grace. And that's because to be grateful for something means you know you don't deserve it. And so, see, what Christians understand is Christians understand that we've been given a gift of of, of a magnitude that we can't possibly fathom. And the fight to kill sin has to be powered by the understanding that salvation is by grace. That you've been united to Christ through faith by grace. That you've been raised with him by grace. That you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus by grace. That salvation is a gift of God that you have not earned and that you do not deserve. 
And it's this logic of trying to trying to present this to our imaginations that that this whole really is all over the place in this passage. So, for example, I'll just give you one example. In verse 12, if you look carefully, Paul says there in Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and, and so forth. Notice he doesn't say, put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility so that you can prove yourself and God will choose you and love you. Look at it. What's the order? He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassionate hearts. You see the order. God doesn't choose you and love you if you're compassionate and kind and humble. He's chosen you and he loves you, and that makes you compassionate and kind and humble. See, gratitude then, getting this order right, gratitude, knowing that salvation is by grace and that out of that flows a life of obedience and love to God and others. Gratitude is the power for becoming what we already are. Now, let me finish by saying this. Go back to union with Christ for just a minute. And both here in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 2, we're told that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and that we're seated with him. That Jesus is not standing at the right hand of God. He's seated. And that's very important. Hebrews 1.3 says this, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. It's a very important theological message to the book of Hebrews and the New Testament. It means this, that Jesus is seated in heaven means that his work is done. And on the cross, with his very last breath, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Well, what is finished? Well, his work of salvation is finished. That he had taken upon himself human flesh and blood and remained faithful to the Father and obedient throughout his earthly life, even to the point of dying on the cross for our sins that he had offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He stared down the holy wrath of God as it came down like a sledgehammer on his soul. And at the last moment of his life, he lifted a triumphant cry, it is finished. There's nothing left for me to do. There are no more sacrifices for me to make. His obedient life and his death has accomplished a once for all salvation for all who believe in him. And when the Apostle Paul says, get this, that God has raised us up and seated us with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he means not only is Jesus seated there, but you're already seated there too. And guess what that means? Your work is done. There's nothing that you can do to add to or to improve upon what Christ has done for you. Do you believe that? Almost on a nightly basis, Ashley will come into the living room long after I have quit for the evening and I'm laying on the couch watching baseball or whatever it is on the television. She will work late into the night and and she will come in at some point and collapse into the chair with a huge sigh and she'll almost always say this. She'll say, oh, this is the first time I've sat down all day. And she means it. Uh, You can pray for her. She's even had major problems with her feet over the past couple of years. Uh, Because being the mother of four kids, she's constantly going from one thing to the other all day long. And the only time she ever gets to rest is late at night after the kids are in bed. And whatever chores that need to be done are done. So every night she collapses exhaustedly into the chair into bed. This is the first time I've sat down all day. See, she goes about her mothering, running around. She goes about her, you know, being a wife to me and the work of our house and the work of her life. Constantly on her feet, wearing herself out 
with work until she finally collapses at the end of the day. Okay, but Paul says that we have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly places. So you cannot go about your work as a Christian in that way. You have to go about your work as a Christian sitting down. Paul wants us to go about our work from a place of rest. And there are really two ways of approaching God, aren't they? And women, you've heard this probably spoken to you a lot of times. There is the Martha way of approaching God, and then there's the Mary way of approaching God. And Martha was the lady that every time, Martha was one of you know, Jesus' best friends, and every time you see Martha in the Bible, it always says, she, she shows up a bunch of times in the New Testament, and she's always doing the same thing. What's she doing? She's running around working. Right? And then there's Mary, her lazy, ungrateful sister. And every time you see Mary... Guess what Mary's doing? She's sitting down paying attention to Jesus. And the Marys of the world typically resent the Marthas of the world because they like just sitting down and doing nothing. And the Marthas, you know, and, and but the Marthas of the world typically resent the Marys of the world and think they're lazy and good for nothing. You know, and so without passing judgment on the value each of those but but you know, each of those is valuable. We need both. But what I want you to see is, is that what this passage I think points us to is is, you know, get busy, do work, kill sin. Remember all that stuff we talked about, but you have to do it. You cannot do your work in the hopes that at the end of doing your work, there will be a chance for you to sit down. That's not gospel Christianity. Gospel Christianity is you sit down. Spiritually, you sit down. And then you get to work. Uh, George Herbert, who's a famous poet, wrote a poem about a man who was invited to dinner by love, personified, but feels that he's so unworthy. So, and so he's hesitant to take a seat around the table. And he puts forth all of his objections, which are answered by love, reassuring him that he's welcome. And the man is so overwhelmed uh, by this show of generosity that eventually he says if he's to be a part of the feast, then he insists on getting up and being the one that serves the meal. And love kind of gently chides him and says, no, 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 if you're going to be a part of this, there's only one way that you get to be a part of what I'm doing, and that is you have to sit down. Let me just read it to you. It's really great. Uh, It's called Love by George Herbert. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I'd lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love, shall, love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiled, smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Now here, listen, truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. Now listen what the man says. My dear, then I will serve. And then love answers, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And so I did sit and eat. See, you can't even get to the business of killing sin until you sit with the wonder of the reality of your being seated with Christ in heavenly places. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is about what God does for us. It's not about what we do for Him. And so are you spiritually sitting down? Or are you constantly running around busy, 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 doing, doing, doing? Are you spiritually resting? See, because we, in order for us to become a people who can do the work of verse 5 and beyond, to really kill sin, to become heavenly people, to, to be 
completely intolerant of any rebellious inclination in our heart toward God and His Spirit, we have to first be people who come and who refuse. See, there's something in the human heart. We want to be the one serving. We don't want to be the one that sits down. But grace comes to all of us this morning and says, this thing we call Christianity is not about you. It's not about you killing yourself and exhausting yourself to serve me. Jesus tells a story. He says at the, at the, end, of, at the end of time when he comes again and we feast with him in heaven, the picture of our feasting with Jesus in heaven is not that he will sit on his throne and that we will all stand around serving him. Get this, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he talks about the feast that awaits us in heaven, he says that we will sit down and he will serve us. That's a picture of the gospel. Are you sitting down? If not, then you need to repent of all of the busy, 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 running, 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 and you need to sit. And then once you sit, once in your heart, once spiritually you're able to sit down, then you can get to work. We are raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. That is an amazing truth. So let's pray that God will bring it home to our hearts. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we sing these songs to you now, that you would come drive home to our hearts the truth of our union with you, of the love that you have for us, that we are hidden with Christ. That that means the Father has to go to him to find us. That we do not stand in heaven on the basis of our own record, of our own obedience. We are there merely on the basis of Christ and his righteousness, that we are there hidden in him. That you look upon us in love because you look upon your son with great love and affection. And so we have no need to work anymore. We can sit down. Help us to sit down. And once we sit down, help us to get to work. That we might truly become people uh, who have put off malice and anger and slander and filthy talk and lying and would be people who would be known for their compassionate hearts and their kindness and their humility and their gentleness and so forth. Do that work in us that we might bear fruit and glorify you, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This benediction serves as an aid to you uh, as you go about the work that God calls you to, to keep the order straight. So when I raise my hands, the message of, of this benediction is you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, right? Therefore, go and get to work. And so receive the benediction then as the promise that at the outset you can begin the work by sitting down. So receive this benediction and sit down spiritually, and then as you leave, go get to work becoming what you already are. That's the message this morning. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.